Welcome to Rewind 2017. I look back at what's been happening in the city and South Cambridgeshire over the last 12 months. I'm Julian Clover. Ahead, we'll hear about politics, food, music, charities, film and sport. But first, Neil Whiteside looks at the year in transport. The problems of transport and congestion in Cambridge continued to rumble on throughout 2017. On the plus side, we saw the opening of the long-awaited Cambridge North Station. It looks fabulous, really fabulous, yeah. It's much closer to my house and I can go all on cycle track all the, the whole way, so I don't have to go on any roads, which is really good. I'm normally I'd go from Waterbeach, so I just thought I'd come to the first day, see how we get on. It's nice, <laughs> nice station. It's very handy as I work on the science park, so yeah, it's very handy. It looks really nice. Yeah, it's all modern and probably need some more signposting outside, but that's about it. <laughs> Connectivity and cycle parking were praised by local pressure group CamCycle. We'll have 1,000 cycle parking spaces. These will be a mixture of Sheffield stands. They're those uh, metal U-shaped ones. And we'll have some of those two-tier stacking cycle parking spaces as well. And as far as I'm aware, it will all be undercover. And what about actually getting to and from the station? There's some infrastructure in there at the moment already, but there are plans, I think, over the coming months and years to expand that. Absolutely. We've got some things that are, will be ready to open with the station. So along Cowley Road, which will connect the station to the Science Park, we've got a new cycleway going in there, um, and that will also have access points to the business park. Um, we'll also have access from the other side of the station, um, which gets you there from along the river on the north. Uh, We've also seen improvements through the City Deal, their cross-city cycling scheme, which have put cycle lanes along Green End Road. There's still work to go there, but that will help connect to the station as well. We've got the busway that will be connecting to the station. There's cycling access along there. Um, But, of course, the piece that will make the most difference will be the Chisholm Trail, and uh, that's still coming along, and uh, we will hopefully have the Chisholm Trail eventually, but it's very, very important that if you support the Chisholm Trail and the Aberchesterton Bridge that you keep letting your local councillors know that you want to see this infrastructure soon. But within a matter of weeks, local residents were voicing their concerns about on-street parking in the area. Every day we get three or four cars parked here, so, and then we often see them walk around to the station, so you know they're avoiding paying the £5 charge. Well, I'll say since the station's been open, I've seen a lot more cars parked where they shouldn't be, especially down that little side road. Definitely been a lot busier down there. There's always space. Like, it's the same as it used to be. Overall, though, the station has been branded a success, spurring the desire for further developments within the city. Here's Lord Adonis, Chair of the National Infrastructure Commission, speaking to BBC Radio Cambridgeshire. The new station that opened in North Cambridge has been hugely successful and has helped support a lot of housing, new jobs and regeneration. What we now propose is there should be a station in South Cambridge too, which could have the same impact. The numbers travelling by train going from Cambridge have nearly doubled in the last 10 years. I think they could double again in the next 10 years which supports more jobs and also gets more cars off the road so it's a green solution too. The guided busway had another mixed year. The guided busway could have been an ordinary busway, it is a guided busway, it takes over three million passenger journeys a year, that's thousands of people making the smart choice not to drive in. Just look at the success of the busway from the station down to Addenbrooks and Trumpington, that is a big success. The county council is in a a very uh, hard position now where they are faced with the possibility of spending huge amounts of money, which they haven't got, to maintain the busway. Uh, And not only that, uh, sections of the busway will have to be taken out of service whilst the repairs are done. 
The problem of buses speeding was also highlighted. The bus companies have actually looked at the, the CCTV footage and have checked it against what's on the buses and what the buses are showing and found the majority of the buses weren't in fact speeding. That specific location, we've not previously had reports of speeding, it has to be said. We have been enforcing elsewhere in the guided busway. About every couple of weeks, somebody goes out with a speed gun and checks. The bus companies do their own checks as well. We will now be adding this section to our area for checking speed. And the option to run unmanned autonomous pods along the busway was trialled. Busway is obviously a great asset. Once you've got a route from something like a park and ride into the centre of Cambridge, it's something that you can do things with. The technology for guided buses is is, is um, not out of date, but obviously it was delivered designed 15 years ago, and it's time to modernise it. It's autonomous, it's a driverless pod, it whizzes, zip, 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 up and down the, gut, the busway. They tried it between the Trumpeton Park and Ride and Addenbrooke's on the biomedical campus. Unfortunately, some of the pods got caught in the vehicle traps, so a new, larger model is being designed. The perennial problem of parking and congestion came up time and again throughout 2017. You've got to give people choices. However, first of all, we don't have a public transport network that's integrated, so you can't go from place to place across uh, the county without going from bus to bus or missing points and so on. So much of the traffic coming into Cambridge, for example, they have no bus service, or they have a bus service that is completely inadequate. There was a lot of discussion on how much to charge for parking in the city's car parks. Here's the leader of the city council, Lewis Herbert. Between 8 and 10, we've got quite a lot of people arriving. Most people arrive in our car parks just a bit later, about 10.15 to 11.15. And what we're really saying to people is, come later and it'll be cheaper. And we're also contributing towards the cut by the county council in the park and ride charge. And from April, when these charges apply, start using a park and ride if you're arriving at peak times, because it'll be free. And this is Councillor John Hipkin. For us not to take part in trying to reduce the volumes of traffic coming into the city would be, frankly, a dereliction of our duty as a public authority. So I, I'm absolutely in favour of these charges, and I think we must continue to charge more for peak time car parking uh, as opposed to shopping time, where I think we should leave things more or less as they are. There was a mixed reaction to the introduction of more residence parking zones. Well, the county council's only solution at the moment is, oh, well, we'll just put in a residence pay- parking scheme, which means you have to pay a permit to park outside your own house or anywhere else, and there are other restrictions. If we can use smart technology to find people for straying into bus lanes, I don't see why we can't use the smart technology to stop commuters parking in places where they shouldn't. One scheme designed to tempt motorists out of their cars and onto bikes got underway. Occasional cyclists are now able to enjoy the services of OFO, a smart bike sharing scheme similar to the Boris bikes in London. After trials in the summer, the scheme went fully live in the autumn. Early concerns about bikes being dumped everywhere seem to have failed to materialise. A cap on the number of private hire taxis in the city, which was reintroduced a couple of years ago, was hailed as a success by Cambridge MP Daniel Zeichner. Um, I'm pleased to say that the Labour Council in Cambridge, I think, took the brave act, went through the process of testing the market and all the rest of it, um, and did reintroduce the cap a year or two ago. And I think it has helped, frankly, because we had a massive overranking problem. Again, this is typical of historic cities. Um, not, not completely solved, but it, but, it, but it has helped. And the kind of problems we still have are how you deal with some of those things, basic technological things about how you, how you make sure that the ranks are filled from the, from the feeder ranks and so on. But the global problems faced by taxi firm Uber were mirrored in the city. 
it is absolutely paramount that passenger safety is first and that people feel confident that the taxi or private hire driver that they are, are taking a drive with is appropriately vetted. But there are a number of offences that we are seeing um, uh, individuals very concerning behaviour, including things like assault, sexual assault, um, battery, who are being granted licences within a relatively recent period. However, in December, the City Council renewed the company's operating licence for another five years, a decision that the Mayor of Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, James Palmer, was happy with. Well, my daughter is 20 years old. She lives in London. She uses Uber all the time. Uh, and she can also use Uber in, in Cambridgeshire as well. And it's not restricted to Cambridge. It's, uh, it's, uh, if you get an Uber in Cambridge, it will take you out of the city, of course, as well. So, uh, yes, I am entirely happy with, with my daughter using Uber. She does so on a regular basis, and, uh, and, and uh, I have no problem with that whatsoever. It's a very traceable and uh, a very common-sense service as far as I'm concerned. These are the highlights of the 2017 musical calendar in Cambridge and beyond. My name is Tim Willett. In March, the winner of Berry Sound was announced. That went to the rock band Tundra. And in 2018, it's the 20th anniversary of the competition and heats get underway in January. Moving on to April, the winner of the Cambridge Band competition was announced as Down and Market-based band Flint Moore. Before they knew they'd won, they spoke to Liz Barker backstage. And you looked like you were enjoying it and the crowd were enjoying oh, it. Oh, mate, it was great. Yeah, it's, it. it's one. It's music's a community thing. And when you're feeling it and they're feeling it, that's when the magic happens. Mm. And it, it was awesome. People were into it. You didn't so. want to stop. No. <laughs> I never did. Never. Especially not on a stage like that with all the lights and all the, all the effects. It's awesome. <laughs> so, I mean, I love the fact that, Maddie, you're, you're obviously... Are you one of the boys or do you, are you quite girly in the band? No. <laughs> We're definitely... I don't know what we are. We aren't a... None of us are a sex. Yeah. <laughs> we are just us. <laughs> I haven't thought about being non-sexual. <laughs> We're just flip balls. Yes. In June, artists including Big Ten, Motortapes and Searching Grey played the Strawberry Fair Cambridge 105 radio stage. And in July, the inaugural local band stage at the Big Weekend was taking place and it included artists like SJ and the Flying Pigs, the Rosa Fair and Cave Town and we broadcast live coverage of that across that weekend. In August, the Cambridge Rock Festival moved house and included local performers Hollow Star and Searching Grey alongside national names. And Mike Hauser caught up with Chantelle McGregor after her set. What did you think of tonight's show? Did you enjoy it? Um, mostly. We had a few little gremlins where things stopped working and it was a bit of a nightmare. But all in all, it went quite well. So, yeah? Yeah. So I've been following you on Facebook as well. Um, you've been quite busy, really, haven't you? Yeah, we have, yeah. Um, I'm working on the new album now, so that should be hopefully done for early next year. Um, and then I'm on tour all year as well, so... <laughs> well, well, are you, is it a tour around the UK or is it a... And Europe. And Europe. Yeah, both. You, so. you ex- you're expanding your, your grasp of the, the, yeah. the, the, the continent. Yeah, I've got like a month in November, December um, in Europe, so... You say the album's due in um, in uh, towards the end of the year. Yeah, probably next early year. next year it'll come out. Well, have you got a title for it? I do, but it's not set in stone, so I'm okay, keeping it so under you, wraps. Okay, so you're going to surprise us then? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Chantelle is going on tour again in the summer of 2018, including a date at the Apex in Bury St Edmunds. In August, the Cambridge Folk Festival included local artist CC Smugglers alongside established favourites such as Jake Bug, Cara Dillon and John Bowden. And here's a clip of Mandy Morton speaking to one of the new folk acts to break through in recent years, Ward Thomas. It's always been a very 
big sort of bucket list for us, Cambridge Folk Festival, just because it's such a... It's like the holy grail of, of like, real proper music and it's got a really dedicated fan base. And we're really lucky, actually, because we're playing on the same day as the Wildwood Kin who are supporting us on the tour. And, yeah, I think it's a bit crazy that we're playing the main stage this year because, like you said, some humongous people have played that stage. So um, we'll try and do our best. But, yeah, it's a big deal for, for us. We're very excited. Lizzie. Moving into September, and the very first Subterranean Festival took place at the Cambridge Corn Exchange. It included performances from some of our city's emerging rock and indie artists, along with up-and-coming bands from the national circuit. The Exton, Seasons and Goldbloom are amongst the local acts flying the flag. Here's Neil Jones talking to Julian Clover before the event. First of all, the, the real driver behind this, just to say, first of all, is because uh, as someone who runs the venue, I'm very frustrated by the fact that the local bands don't get the opportunity to play the Corn Exchange. We get big touring product in, it comes, it goes. Uh, so this is this is a, one way of getting bands to play. So what we're going to do is we're going to set up three stages on the floor of the Corn Exchange in different corners. Uh, the audience will then be in the middle. So it's kind of like Jules Holland style with the audience in the middle as well. So as soon as the Inferno stage finishes, uh, the Labyrinth stage will then start up with the next act and then as soon as that finishes the underworld stage will will, will uh, I, I went to a dance event at uh, as in sort of modern dance at the, the Corn Exchange. I think it was described as a promenade, but you can't really describe an Indian Not rock festival as that, no. can you, really? And then simultaneous to that, in the upstairs bar, we'll have some acoustic acts as well. We'll also have a bit of other activity in the main bar as well. But that's that's the format, so it's going to be something that we've never done in the Corn Exchange before, and we're just pleased to be able to say that we're launching you know, a new rock and indie festival with some touring acts, but also crucially for me, uh, to get some local bands in there. And the 2018 edition takes place on the 15th of September. And finally, the highlights per Personally of the year had to be the NMG Awards, moving to the Cambridge Corn Exchange and celebrating its fifth anniversary. Fred's House won the Sid Barrett Pride of Cambridge Award. As anybody who has uh, visited the Corn Exchange will know, we, uh, we had a big celebration uh, last year uh, to mark the anniversary of Sid Barrett uh, in what would have been his 70th year and the 10th year of his passing. Uh, Sid's contribution is immense. He is arguably and undoubtedly Cambridge's most famous musical son. We have a piece of artwork in the foyer. Sadly, it actually stopped working two days ago, which is rather embarrassing for us. Uh, But do come back the next time you're in the venue and you'll see the whole thing working. Um, Sid Barrett's contribution to art and music is immeasurable for the city. And I'm delighted to say that his sister... Rosemary joins us this evening to give away the brand new named award, the Sid Barrett Pride of Cambridge Award. Please welcome Rosemary to the stage. Thank you. Um, The recipient of this award has been consistently working hard and achieving in the five years that the NMG Awards have been running. I must say that Sid would be really pleased to be involved in this. He'd love to be here tonight. So... We have the video now. Find out who it is. Fred's House, I first introduced them onto a stage for the Cambridge Rock Festival. It was Springfest, and I think it must be about six, seven, eight, nine years ago. I don't know. Since then, I've watched them develop. I was touched by their songs. They've really, really done well. They've worked hard at it as well. So, Fred's House, never move. Just keep extending, getting that planning permission, and just building up and up and up. You're great. Hello.
Hello, it's Bob Harris here. Hello to Fred's house and congratulations. So pleased to hear that you've won the Sid Barrett Pride of Cambridge Award. It's always great when we get to hear of Under the Apple Tree guests doing so well. Just wanted to wish you all the best and congratulations. Travelling up and down the country for gigs every weekend and releasing two hugely popular albums. The Far East beckons for the band next month as they tour China for the very first time. Huge congratulations to one of the city's favourite bands, Fred's House! I feel really embarrassed right now. Thank you so much. Um, we're massive fans of Pink Floyd, by the way, because uh, they're just amazing, and we just love that all that kind of old music. And we're getting quite old ourselves, so um, thanks, Gav. Um, it's so we're so proud to be uh, involved in the NMGs for the, for the five years that it's been running. Um, so thank you NMG, thank you Cambridge Live, thank you to Tim and all the team. Um, we've had a tough year as a band on a personal level, <laughs> but thank you so much. And um, yeah, long may it continue. Well done, guys. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. <laughs> and the event was headlined by artists including Hunter and Alex Francis. You got a few drinks, you wanna get into it now. My name's Alex Francis, these are my fellas. We like to start with a track called What You're Looking For. Here we go. There goes a little something. Sing it one, two, one, two, three. Nothing's gonna last forever Something's gonna change your mind Life has got a way of getting better You just got to lay it on the line Sometimes if your mind's made up you should open up the door I will be by your side Where you find what you're looking for If it feels alright And it takes you high enough I will be by your side Where you find what you're looking for 
Cambridge Market started the year with a major award. Here's market manager Dan Ritchie. At the 2017 Great British Market Awards held in January, Cambridge Market won the award for the Best Love Your Local Market campaign, which has been supported in the past by 105, we know. They were very impressed with, amongst other things, our hot food offer, our use of social media, the events that we put on, which included kitchen demonstrations and a classic car rally. Things are going really well. In the spring, plans to expand the market into the nighttime economy got underway. We spoke to Dan again at the first night market in May. We've got lots of our traditional traders on the market. We've got uh, businesses from all around the, uh, the city and from uh, around the outskirts of the city coming onto the market and just showcasing their offer uh, in a slightly different environment, a bit more relaxed, a bit more informal. We can hear the music in the background and we're really looking forward to the screening of Greece in a, in a little while later. Whose idea was it to do this? The City Council has worked with the, with, uh, the Cambridge bid. We're both keen on sort of energising the market square in the evening. We know that it, we can make more use of the space and so this is just the first and hopefully a series of night markets throughout the summer to sort of showcase uh, the market square that when the market traders go home, it's still a live and active place and a place that people want to be. As well as the regular stalls, there was also a movie screening, thanks to Star and Mouse, run by Eleanor Lyons. We've got to beat the sun firstly, because of course when you're projecting, you need it to be dark. I think you're winning. Well, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully. So what we've done is we've created a blackout box. And we've I mean, got a lovely them. new projector, it's 10,000 lumens, so that's really, really bright. We're projecting from behind, which is really unusual for us because normally we're coming from the front with um, our projector sitting inside lovely vintage suitcases. But uh, tonight called for something different. And we're screening Greece, and it's great here. We've got some nice music in the background. There's loads of people on the market, and that's really nice to see. Yeah, I think yeah. it's going to get busier as well by yeah, the look of it. Yeah, I really hope so. It's, it's got like... Um, nice energy about it yeah. now. It feels very exciting. It's a beautiful so. little market square yeah, this, isn't it? Yeah, and it needs it? to be used. We lost some well-known food businesses this year, among them Inder's Kitchen, which had established a big following for its curries. We needed to, to scale. We needed to scale the business. We were really at that kind of crossroads. Um, and when you I say mean, you need to, to scale it, me- yeah. meaning... We'd obviously changed our direction um, somewhat over the last sort of 12 to 18 months and gone more into manufacturing rather than doing the hot delivery. So obviously the sort of the chutneys and the ready meals, which obviously uh, you're familiar with, um, and more recently the curry kits. And they were now sort of in about 40, 45 stores and outlets, including Budgeons, uh, in and around Cambridgeshire. And we'd also sort of been talking to Nisa Local, we'd got a deal with them. Um, and we were also talking to people like the co-op in East Anglia and also Ocado. And the reality was is that we needed really just a huge injection of cash to, to realise those types of accounts because, you know, when these guys order, they order big and someone's got to front that money. We thought we'd lost Cotto on East Road 2 following rumours that Michelin-starred chef Hans Schweitzer was moving back to Barbados. But it emerged that Cotto would move to the Gonville Hotel on Gonville Place with Hans as master chef. We have moved because we felt we have outgrown the old Cotto. I feel... It was very, very hard on our service staff uh, to go up the stairs and down 50, 60, 70 times a night. And it sort of became apparent that we must do a change. And when the opportunity came up to join a Gommel Hotel as a partner with Cotta Restaurant, we took the opportunity and we created, uh, as you can see, the brand new, beautiful dining room, which is very 
full of lights. You can see Parker's piece, and we're creating a lovely terrace to go with it. So that was an obvious choice for us to come here. Two outlets on King Street closed their doors for the last time. Clowns was run by the Sorcello family and had been a fixture on King Street for three decades. Jenny and Michaela wanted to spend more time looking after their father, Rafa. Cambridge 105 Radio's Flavour programme spoke to some former customers. Cambridge, I remember when I got here, it was just a few business. It was Clowns open until midnight and Sabinos open until 11. I used to work in the Champion of the Thames come in clowns every every morning for a coffee and well Jen would often try and slip a sambuca in my, my morning espresso feeling for me is just being in my village in the cafe in the evening you just need to have the old man here uh, having their beers and talking about football and screaming at each other Remember the ice creams Jenny always used to give you? Yeah. <laughs> Even if the mum said no, every child left with an ice cream. Yes. I mean a gelati, sorry, gelati. Four years ago, Joe Kuczynska realised an ambition she had held for several years, to open her own cafe. The cafe, Afternoon Teas in King Street, quickly established itself as a favourite with a loyal following. But Joe wanted to move on. When you're thinking about a business and where you want to take it, there's there's a couple of options. Obviously, you can expand, or you could get a manager in, or you know. But all of those scenarios mean that I would need to step back and and be doing admin, which isn't what I enjoy. I enjoy customer facing. I enjoy baking, but being in the cafe as much as I am is not sustainable for me personally. So there was no way for me to grow the business but still enjoy it. But as one door closes, another one opens. Stem and Glory, the vegan-based restaurant that already had one outlet on Mitcham's Corner, moved into the unit vacated by afternoon teas. Jack's Gelato opened an ice cream parlour in Bennett Street. And not too far away, it's Steak and Honour. The mobile burger joint went into brick close to the Corn Exchange. We got a look around shortly before its opening. Come through the front doors, ground floor, kitchen. There'll be a few counter-level seats. You're met with some pretty kind of bright decor we've got we've commissioned some artwork from we three club so you'll kind of see that right in front of you some kind of hexagonal tile floor nice bright mustard yellow open kitchen like we have on the van so you'll be able to see us preparing the burgers just weeks later on the other side of the corn exchange honest burger opened its first restaurant outside of london add to that chosen bun on the hills road and many more established restaurants, and it's clear the city doesn't want for burgers. Or for independence. And while Cambridge Station decided it preferred national brands to occupy its units, the Grafton was looking at Cambridge businesses. The first floor is going to be a fantastic food offer. So we have Bella Italia up there with the View Cinema. On the, the rest of the first floor, so where the old food operators like the, the likes of Burger King um, were, and then across what was the old first floor of BHS, we will be putting in five or six restaurants. The, the images can be seen on our, on our website. That food area, which will be called Food Social, is going to be absolutely fantastic. And I tell you what's pleasing about that. Not only are we having interest from 
national food chains but we're also having some interest from the Cambridge food scene operators as well so it'll be a real mix. So you're prepared to let Cambridge independence into that area? It, without a shadow of a doubt one of the things that I realised coming back to the city however many years ago it was now probably seven the independent the Cambridge independent um, stores and restaurants are a huge strength to this city and we want to embrace that so we are talking to a, a number of, uh, of Cambridge food operators in particular they'll be a, um, a fantastic addition to the scheme upon the first floor. And Cambridge 105 Radio's Flavour celebrated its 10th year on the air. The launch presenter was Elaine Cusack. Putting it together was a joy because it was the equivalent of putting together a magazine by myself yeah. with all the different features, the front page, well, you know, of course the script, I drafted and redrafted it, tried to get it perfect, ran it back past the station manager and that was interesting. But as well I thought, well, where, where, should, where do I begin? You know, Where do I begin with it? So I started with Dave Fox and Susie Oakes in the first show and I also had my mum and dad because I wanted to, um, I didn't want the show to be all about me but I certainly felt for the first one I had to introduce myself, sell myself a little bit and I thought I would do that by introducing two wonderful people my my dad and and my mum Homelessness remained in the news throughout 2017 but in February the local issue became a national story when Cambridge law student Ronald Coyne posted a video online showing him burning a £20 note in front of rough sleeper Ryan Davis in Bridge Street Man stopped, just looked like a usual person who was going to stop I said, could you spare some change, please, sir? He says, oh, let me see what, what I've got. He's um, took the... He said, oh, yeah, he pulled out a £20 note, put it, gone like that, like to pass it. I thought, I couldn't believe my luck, you know what I mean? And then um, he's gone, oh, I don't even pulled it back. And then he's lit it, burnt it. And he said, how's that for change? I've changed it into flames. The story came to the attention of political blogging website Evolve Politics, who started a Just Giving page for Jimmy's Night Shelter in Cambridge. The article that we wrote on the story, it got an absolutely huge response, and that indicated to us that our readers and the general public felt the same about this as we did, you know, that some good should come out, such a despicable act. So we started off a fundraiser, and we were amazed with the response, to be honest. The public outcry led to many thousands of pounds being raised, opening up the opportunity for Jimmy's to fund an outreach worker. The one thing that's come out of the, the unfortunate incident is, again, the community's decided to take action, which is positive, and I think it's that that should be celebrated and that, that actually means something that, that actually individuals will be invested in and will be spoken to, uh, because it's quite a lonely time on the streets. But throughout the year, the number of homeless people on the streets of our city continued to rise. Julian Landy, founder and trustee of Homes for the Homeless in Cambridge, explains. Walking around the city of Cambridge, I've been very perturbed by the increasing and rapidly increasing number of rough sleepers. The official count by Cambridge City Council uh, was up to 40 people in 2016, and there's another official account next week. I suspect the actual number of rough sleepers in the city is currently about 110 people. See, that's a lot higher than we're used to, aren't it? You you were explaining to me before that this is a a walk that the City Council, a couple of people from the City Council do every year? Yes, second Wednesday evening of every November, sorry, second Wednesday in November every year, two people are employed to walk the same walk and then report the number of rough sleepers they see to the Department of Communities and Local Government. It's an right. official request by that department to the City Council. 
that is a fixed walk. They walk the same route. But in practice, of course, rough sleepers yeah. sleep wherever they can. I was going to say, it's, it's well known that rough sleepers will go into churchyards, Mill Road Cemetery here, I can imagine. We have quite a few most evenings. Uh, they tuck themselves away because they don't want to be seen. They don't want to be out about. They kind of feel they're vulnerable. So this is this is a much lower number then. Even the sort of numbers we've had, I think you were saying, was it 7 in 2014? Yes, 7 in 2014, 17 in 2015, and now last year, 40. I expect the number that counted this year to be maybe double that, up to See 80 that, or thereabouts. Even then, if we're talking about this being a fixed wall, that's really worrying, isn't it? It's scary. It really is. And remember that all these people are residents of Cambridge. They're not people who've come into the honeypot to get what they can. Uh, people outside and in Cambridge indeed think that uh, the number of rough sleepers and beggars reflects uh, people coming into Cambridge yes. outside, and that isn't the case. If you're from somewhere else, the two people who walk that evening in November walk every night. Right. Uh, different routes, of course. And if they see somebody they don't recognise, they have a chat to them. And if they're not actually normally resident in Cambridge, which means they've lived in Cambridge for three years or more, then they get taken home, same night, to wherever they come from. All the time, funding for organisations that deal with the problem continued to face challenges. Here's Nigel Howlett, Chief Executive of the Cambridge Housing Society, talking about their railway house project. The government announced new proposals for the funding of supported housing like this a couple of weeks ago. And although those proposals were better than their previous proposals, these new proposals aren't good enough. They still put services like this at risk by not providing the funding they need to provide these sort of services in the future. The funding we get either from the government or from local government needs to be enough to provide the sort of services to meet the needs of people here. And the problem is that the proposals that are announced won't provide that level of funding. Already this service is about 7% short of the funding it needs in two years' time, and under the government's proposals that will get worse. Labour MP for Cambridge, Daniel Zeichner, vowed to keep up the pressure on the government. I think the government can do more. I hope... They will do more, but if they don't, I'm going to go on, keep on nagging them in the Houses of Parliament. Cambridge 105 Radio. You're listening to Rewind 2017. Our look back at what's been happening in the city and South Cambridgeshire over the last 12 months. Still to come, film and sport. But first, Matt Webb looks at the organisations that were Charity of the Month. Every month, Cambridge 105 Radio selects a charity to be our Charity of the Month. Over the last year, we've supported charities ranging from those supporting the homeless to sick children and mental health. We'll take a look at some of those we've featured. We start with the Sick Children's Trust, who are our Charity of the Month for February. My colleague Lee Chambers takes up the story. The Sick Children's Trust, Cambridge 105's Charity of the Month, provides free, high-quality, home-from-home accommodation, as well as emotional and practical support, to families with sick children in hospital in the UK. In Cambridge, they run two residential units at Addenbrooke's Hospital, Acorn House and Chestnut House. A few weeks ago, I went along to Acorn House to meet manager Abby Abdel Al and Victoria and Ash, who were staying at Acorn House while their son George received treatment at Addenbrooke's. I began by asking Victoria to tell me about her son. 
George is now five months old. He was born the 31st of August 2016. He was born with exomphalus, which means organs are born on the outside. He was born with his liver, his stomach and his intestines on the outside. He's also got five heart defects. He's got curvature of the spine and he's got a shortened right arm with a missing radius. Did you know about that in advance? Yeah, we knew um, about his tummy issues, his exomphalus at the 12-week scan. Um, and then we found out about his other issues on the 24-week scan. So when he was born, he needed obviously lots of surgery and lots of time here at the hospital, which is how you ended up here at Acorn House. Yeah, when he was born, he was taken up to NICU over at the Rosie, where he was intubated for a day, then went on to various help for breathing, which he still remains on oxygen now. Um, he had his exomphalus surgery at 11 weeks old. He's also had three other surgeries. He's had his hernia surgery, he's had a NJ tube fitted and he's had a Hickman line fitted. You've been through quite a lot <laughs> since the end of August. How has the Sick Children's Trust helped? Words don't describe how much they've helped. Um, we wouldn't have coped. If, this, if Acorn or Chestnut wasn't here, we'd be an hour drive home instead of a two-minute walk. It's, yeah, it's really helped. So you've been staying here, is that right, since the end of August? We stayed over at Chestnut um, for, I think it was six to seven weeks, and then he was well enough for us to be the hour away from home. And then we came back before Christmas, November time, we came back. Then he went from NICU over to the children's ward and then that's where we've been staying over at Acorn now because it's Acorn's closest to the children's ward. And the noises we can hear off are like little snuffling noises. George is asleep at the moment, is he waking up? He's, he's stirring, he's just getting comfortable, bless him. And does he stay here or is he at the hospital? He's at the hospital, um, C3, as a patient. But as he's off of his, uh, some of his medication now, we're able to take him out, out in the car as long as we're sort of local to Cambridge. And he's got to be back by certain times. That interview was recorded on the 2nd of February. A few days later, the Sick Children's Trust contacted me to tell me the very sad news that a few days after I'd spoken to Victoria and Ash, George had died. And of course, Victoria and Ash were absolutely devastated. But it's their wish that we broadcast this interview and hopefully it will serve to highlight the amazing work the charity does supporting families through the most challenging and heartbreaking of times. Our sincere condolences, of course, to Ash and Victoria. It was a privilege to meet them and their beautiful son, George. Cambridge 105. Radio. I'm pleased to reveal that our charity of the month for July is Romsey Mill and joining me now to tell us more about the work of Romsey Mill is their Chief Executive Neil Perry. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon Matt, it's great to be with you. And first of all, just tell us about your role as Chief Executive. It sounds like a, a grand title that you have. It, it sounds like it's a grand title Matt, but but let me assure you and listeners that, that actually my role is to uh, support everyone in all that they're doing through the work of Romsey Mill, our family workers, our youth workers, our early years professionals, uh, our volunteers. Uh, so my job is to encourage, to equip, to support and to enable lots of people to do brilliant work. Um, I also work with a, a, an excellent group of trustees, volunteers that uh, oversee 
all of our charitable work, all of our activities, all of the positive stuff that we do across Cambridgeshire. Uh, so I'm grateful for that board of trustees that help me to serve Romsey Mill and all of the young people, children and families we support. So tell us about what Romsey Mill does for people who aren't familiar with the work of the charity. I'll do that, thank you. Well, Romsey Mill has been well established in Cambridge since 1980 and really since since that point right up to today, uh, Romsey Mill creates opportunities, some brilliant, diverse, wonderful opportunities with young people, children and families. I'm pleased to announce that Cambridge 105's Charity of the Month for June is Headway Cambridgeshire and joining me now from the organisation is Madeline Rice. Good afternoon to you. Hello. So... Tell us a bit about Headway Cambridgeshire for people who aren't familiar with the work of the charity, first of all. Okay, we are a charity that um, provides rehabilitation to people with brain injuries of all sorts. And we have two hubs, one in Fullbourne and one in Peterborough. And um, it's often the case that people, after they have had all the help they can get from the hospital, that then they're sent home and there isn't an awful lot left for them around about. So we're the only local charity that provides those sort of services for people and their families. Um, And we provide all sorts of things. um, Because the thing about brain injury is that no two people are the same and no two brain injuries are the same. And so we try and tailor our services to the needs of the individual. And I'm pleased to announce that uh, Cambridge 105's Charity of the Month for August is CAMSITE. And joining me in the studio now to tell us a little bit more about the charity and what the charity does is uh, Sally Knotts. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. So first of all, just tell us about your role within CAMSITE and what you do. Um, I'm client services manager at CAMSITE, so I oversee um, a range of services that we offer, um, which includes emotional support, uh, community support, rural support and equipment. So you touched on rural support there, that's out, out in the sticks some people would say. <laughs> well yes, not exactly we have 18 rural support groups um, scattered around the region and they're really aimed at people for whom transport and getting into the centre of town is really difficult so we take our service out to them. So we run um, groups once a month um, within villages around the area um, people come there for um, speakers, for general peer support amongst each other there's always a member of cam site there to give guidance and help so it's a mixture of getting people out and about to alleviate isolation i'm pleased to welcome to cambridge 105 uh, donna tolbert from the arthur rank hospice charity good afternoon to you good afternoon thank you for having me and of course you are cambridge 105's charity of the month for march indeed and we're absolutely thrilled so first of all tell us about your involvement with arthur rank and what you do of course i'm the director of fundraising communications for the charity and I have the pleasure in going out and thanking people for their very generous donations and their contributions to the charity. Um, We couldn't do what we do without the support of our community. As a hospice, we are delivering care to patients across the whole of the county and that is a really big ask financially but we're delighted that with the NHS contribution that we receive, we are able to fundraise from our local community to ensure that additional services are available to those that will require them as a result of living with a life-limiting illness. So it's a really, really enjoyable and rewarding role that I have there and for me it's about ensuring that the patients get the excellent care that they so truly deserve. Do you have a big team? 
Well, in the fundraising and comms team, I have um, a couple of ladies on maternity leave at the moment, enjoying time with their, their youngsters. But we're a team of about 12 at the moment, which is lovely. We've grown it massively in the last two years in readiness for the move to the new hospice that we're now enjoying. But they are a fabulous team. They work really, really hard. Um, and they're, they're very, very regularly in the local newspaper on local radio uh, talking about the work that they do and thanking those that are fundraising for us. Now, you've recently moved premises. Tell us about that. Indeed. We very sadly moved from Mill Road here um, to our new facility, which we're delighted to be in now, called um, the Arthur Rank Hospice Charity at Shelford Bottom. The Mill Road facility was wonderful and it served us very, very well. We were there for 35 years. Um, so we did leave with an extremely heavy heart, but we recognised that we needed a bigger premises in which we could deliver care to more people. And what was lovely about being able to build on a new site was that we were able to go back to the complete drawing board get experience and learning from other hospices to find out what really worked for them and we were able to deliver a really well-designed purpose-built building and that's been crucial in enabling us to deliver excellent care and ensure that we are efficient in doing that and if you'd like your organization to be considered for our charity of the month feature in 2018 email charity at cambridge105.co.uk When Theresa May called a snap election in June, Cambridge was a marginal seat, so the senior party leaders bought a season ticket to the city. Lib Dem leader Tim Farron was confident his party could retake the constituency from Labour. From the Liberal Democrat point of view, being selfish, yes, we'd win Cambridge, I'm fairly confident. We'd massively increase the number of seats we've got, I'm sure. The problem is, the Tory party would, for all the seats they they would lose the Liberal Democrats, they'd gain a bunch in the Labour Party because of the chaos they're in. Both the predictions of Mr Farron and the Prime Minister were wide of the mark. Daniel Zeichner retook Cambridge with a swing of 15%, largely at the expense of the Lib Dems and the Greens. We've got to sort out the transport and housing problems in this city to make sure it's affordable and possible for young people to live here. In the short term, I very much hope Labour's in a position to honour our pledge to make ensure the, the full rights of all EU nationals. Uh, if Labour's in government in the next few days, we'll be doing that, and that will be a big, big change for so many people who are suffering uncertainty at the moment. Julian Huppert, who had held Cambridge for the Lib Dems prior to 2015, said he wouldn't stand again. It was frustrating not to win. It was a very strange election, a whole lot of ways, and changed a lot during the time. But I felt it was time to do other things. I'd had the amazing privilege of representing my hometown for, for five years, um, and before that, as eight years as a councillor, uh, which was amazing. It's a privilege a lot of people never get to have, and I'm really proud of much of the stuff that I managed to get done, but you know, enough's enough. In South Cambridgeshire, Conservative Heidi Allen increased her share of the vote. Well, I'm not a natural chicken counter in life, and you know, the political world has gone a bit mad since Brexit, so I absolutely didn't um, expect it. I hoped, of course, but I certainly wasn't expecting my vote share to go up. That is a very, very pleasant surprise indeed. Yeah, I'm absolutely delighted with that. With a hefty majority behind her, Miss Allen would become a critic of the government, singled out by the Daily Telegraph as one of the so-called mutineers against a hard Brexit. And here, speaking for families in an emotionally charged debate on universal credit. I don't know where to start after that. I'm humbled by the words um, from my honourable good friend from Bergenhead. No government is perfect. No benefit system is perfect, no debate, no motion is perfect, but by God we work together and we make this better. And I'm sure our focus on universal credit... Um, not very good at this job, am I, Mr Speaker? Elections to Cambridgeshire County Council saw the Conservatives regain their majority as support for UKIP in the Fens 
fell away. But the newly elected mayor of Cambridgeshire and Peterborough isn't a fan. James Palmer believes the district and city councils can do a better job. This is a devolution deal. Devolution means bringing powers down from government, yes, but also in council as well. There's an important part of the devolution deal which is subsidiarity and that suggests bringing powers from the county council down to the districts. I believe our most efficient councils are our district councils, including the city council of course, and I believe that that's the most efficient way of delivering service to the people of Cambridgeshire. Cambridgeshire City Council and South Cambridgeshire District Council began working together on shared bin collections in February. The councils were looking to save £700,000 over three years. But three months later, residents were still experiencing delays in having their bins emptied. Director of Shared Waste Mike Hill told BBC Radio Cambridgeshire they were determined to improve the service. Drivers came in and said, this works, that won't work, this won't work. We've got one of the drivers at the moment, uh, Mark. He is sat taking comments from other drivers and working with Jason on the computer to actually modify those rounds. So I know last week, 99.55% of the bins across Cambridge City and South Cambridgeshire were collected on time. That doesn't excuse the ones we've missed. The City Council published details of a reduction in available moorings on the River Cam. Jim Ross of Cam Boaters led the opposition to the council consultation. The group said the changes were unnecessary. Certainly everyone we've spoke to on the towpath, um, we've had public meetings, we've set up stalls, um, you know, those who are interested are very supported, supportive. The council might say that things do need to be tidied up in in some way and the people who are there do need to be regulated. Is Do you think that there's simply a better way that they could do this? Oh, no, we, we absolutely agree with the council that those, and I guess you're talking about the boaters on Riverside, um, the council's owned that site for four years now and has brought them into what they call a regulated mooring list two years ago but have never chosen to charge fees and uh, wanting to clear it on health and safety grounds but have provided no information. I think what the consultation has shown is that a more creative solution needs to be found and that those boats should be brought in to the normal residential mooring scheme and if access needs to be made safer then that's something the council should do. The council said it would increase the number of proposed moorings but there would be an increase in fees. IVF treatment will no longer be offered on the NHS in Cambridgeshire after the county's clinical commissioning group suspended the service until April 2019. The CCG called it a difficult decision, but said it will save £700,000 a year from their £1.1 billion budget. On drive, Stephen Harbottle, service lead and consultant embryologist at Cambridge IVF, did his best to give assurance. We're quite distressed with the outcome of this uh, announcement, of course, and we want to reassure the public that we are still here for them and we are still intending to be here for them for the long term. The only difference between the care pathway that they had and the care pathway that we have now is that, unfortunately, people will have to pay for their own care. And there were fears a reorganisation of children's centres in the county could hit early intervention services. Neil Perry runs Romsey Mill, one of two charitable organisations in Cambridgeshire which is contracted to run children's services. He was concerned at the impact the cuts would have down the line. What happens is the the costs escalate later as the the needs and the difficulties and the challenges that families face increase. And to illustrate that point... The budget for looked-after children in Cambridgeshire County Council, so the budget uh, for looked-after children, uh, in the current year we're in, 
they're forecasting a deficit of £3.4 million. My name is Toby Miller. My name is Yossi Osman. My name's Ashley Capaldi. My name is Mark Levisage, or Mr Pricklepants, as I'm sometimes known. Welcome to Bums on Seats. <laughs> 2017 was one of the best years in film in ages, and over the course of the year, Bums were on seats 23 times to guide you through the best and worst of the films. Here's a look back at another very busy year for the team. January saw the arrival of the awards big hitters. The first show reviewed three films in my own personal top ten of the year. It also saw the return of four Scottish junkies after a 20-year gap. La La Land is definitely a bit of a love letter to, to the old school Hollywood and the old musicals. However, I, it's not a musical. This is going to sound like a criticism, but I don't mean it to be. Um, I've said this to a few people now. My only problem with this was that train spotting exists. The first one exists, so the second one can't be as good because the first one is such a punch. Home to Alone 2, Godfather 2. <laughs> February had reviews of two more of the year's best Dancing About Moonlight and Wincing at Tony Erdman. And we also spoke to the Water Sprite Festival and Neil Brand about their upcoming events. In Moonlight, it's even more subtle because you don't know what the love story is going to be until quite far in. I loved the fact that really you had to be patient to get the payoff with this. Mm. Um, it's a lot like life in that sense. Well, the reason why it's like that is because we're used to thinking that sort of adventure movies started with Errol Flynn, but actually the Errol Flynn Robin Hood, because of the Fairbanks one, wasn't allowed to use any of the plotting that Fairbanks had used. March was a tale as old as time. As well as looking at a new film from local filmmaker John Holdsworth, we reviewed films from the very big Beauty and the Beast to the very small The Fitz. Helena The Fitz runs to just a compact 72 minutes. Does that give it enough time to offer anything interesting on the struggles of adolescence? Yes, absolutely, and I think the fact that it is quite short. Throughout the film, I felt like it was quite a long, short film, um, and then the end just completely blew me away. I really like this film. And there's so many themes running through this film, particularly coming of age. April was an all-star month for interviews, with Ben Wheatley in town to promote Free Fire, and Woody Harrelson chatting to us about Lost in London. I wanted to make it feel dangerous, you know, that it's an industrial space, basically, and a gun is like a kind of industrial tool for throwing bits of metal through the air at you to, to kill you, you know, and I wanted to get the audience to feel that. It's actually an idiotic idea. I, I, there, I can't tell you, maybe a thousand times I wished I hadn't had that idea, but in the end, it came out pretty good, so I'm glad I did it. May had our first look at the IMAX screen being built at the Light Cinema, as well as reviews of Alien Covenant and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. IMAX is something that we've always wanted to do. We've always had a lot of interest in it, and their specification is what cinema is about. You know, it's image maximum. In this, in this film, it was it stayed really true, certainly to the, the first one, the first Guardians of the Galaxy. I thought, thought that the, the tone and everything was it was very similar, um, some genuine heart to it, as well as all the usual sort of banter and the action and, and everything as well. We 
took a break for Strawberry Fair in June, but we still had time to wonder about Wonder Woman and to look at a Fritz Lang re-release. That was my favourite bit and one of my bugbears. So the rest of the Amazonian tribe are fantastic and like they have their wrinkles, they have their facial armour, these women are warriors. But then we've got our leading lady stood in between them. So if a few of your other Amazonian tribeswomen feel the need to wear fur because it's freezing cold, why are you stood there in knickers and a bustier? Like what's, it just, it doesn't work. It's it's very obvious. July had us gushing over Baby Driver and debating the merits of online services such as Netflix, both in the studio and with a transatlantic chat with Violet Luca from Film Comment. It is a, a real film lover's film and I think you can see the kind of development of Edgar Wright's sort of trademark style as you look back at his whole sort of back catalogue, even from the TV show Spaced, you know, there's some of the sort of same stylistic features there. But it is also, you know, just a classic story and the characters are you know, lovable and believable in that kind of cinematic universe that they live. Um, so yeah, it's more than just, just the style. August can be a quiet month, but we still squeezed five reviews into a single show, including Atomic Blonde, and we talked about Comedy Girls Trip as well. What I would say, she had brilliant fight scenes, the choreography, and maybe that shows because it was the director who used yeah, to be a stuntman. But I mean, the choreography of the fight scenes was brilliant. It would be a great sketch show, and one of the writers is the writer of Blackish, which is an incredible, I think it's a Netflix original comedy or an Amazon original. That has, that's deserved its rave reviews, and I was expecting so much more from, yeah. from this writer, and he's, he's delivered us set pieces of a sketch show. He can't write. September saw us previewing the Cambridge Film Festival with a look at Marlena Dietrich hiding behind the sofa from It and watching with Mother. You mentioned in your writing for the woman whom one longs for that this is the film where Marlene found Dietrich, where she found herself as an actress. I was wondering what you, what you might possibly have meant by that. I think it perhaps more had to do with sealing her image and capturing an essence by use of lighting. October had another five Cambridge Film Festival features, our festival special and an extended look at probably the year's most anticipated film, Blade Runner 2049. The original did not speak to me in the way it's spoken to many people. <laughs> it was a film, I watched it, I took some things I enjoyed from it. My main thing is always, oh, that's the outtake from The Shining at the end. Did you know that, people? That's my main outtake. Yeah. So. Amazing job, I think. Even if I hadn't seen the original Blade Runner, what Villeneuve and Deakins have done, it's astonishing. You November was overflowing with reviews once again, including Call Me By Your Name and Paddington 2. And we spoke to acclaimed American filmmaker Bill Morrison. Uh, Dave, does Paddington 2 capture the magic once again? Uh, yes, I'm going to say it does, and even more so. I remember going to see the first one with just a, this slight hint of doubt about it, you know, and then being charmed off my feet. The uh, silent parade of African Americans that, um, that were marching uh, down Fifth Avenue, you know, protesting violence elsewhere in the country. Lord, I no longer believe. And we've dodged the behemoth that is Star Wars in December by looking back with a roundup of films you may have missed and the reveal of our top 12 of the year, 
with a clear winner in our poll. And the number one film in our countdown is all about appetite. Appetite for food, for sunshine, for knowledge, for sex, and eventually for love. Call me by your name. That you'll sit through the credits and you'll be crying in the credits of the character crying. Um, and you want to go back to that world so much because it's, it's first love depicted on screen in a really beautiful way. So much is unsaid because you're so afraid to love this person. That's been 2017 in the film world, as seen through the eyes of the Bums on Seats team. Join us every other Saturday at noon as we try to do it all again in 2018. A 4-0 home win over Notts County was the perfect start to Cambridge United's year. A week later, the TV cameras were in attendance for an FA Cup third-round tie against Leeds, who came back to win 2-1. Four wins from six in April kept Cambridge in playoff contention, but they needed a favourable result at Wickham on the final day and for other results to go their way. They lost 1-0, and manager Sean Derry was frustrated. I think what really disappoints me more than anything, regardless of the result today, is where we've ended up, 11th. That really, listen, that hurts so much. Over the summer, the rebuilding began. The likes of David Ford, Jabo Ibere and David Amu arrived, while Barry Corr and Will Norris were among those to depart. The U's lost three of their ten pre-season matches, one of which was Josh Coulson's testimonial. Tottenham's under-23s came to town, and before the game, the long-serving defender described his feelings. It's going to be emotional, I think. I'm going to walk out with my, my little boy, which will be, a, be emotional in itself, but... Uh, speaking to Tom Stewart about the, the programme, some people have said some nice things about me, which they often don't. So, yeah, it will be, I'm sure it will be an emotional evening. He was to be proved right, and Tottenham, his boyhood club, won 3 2. But Coulson joined Lake Orient on loan soon after. Cambridge's season got underway with back to back defeats, but they ended the month with four points on the board. Perhaps the biggest August story was the departure of Luke Berry, who joined Luton. September produced four wins from seven league games, while October yielded two wins, two draws and one defeat. But in November, the goals began to dry up despite a number of clean sheets. The low point was a 7-0 thrashing at Luton, and December's first three games in all competitions all ended in defeat. Chairman Dave Doggett also quit before Christmas, and it was announced that Graham Daniels, Sean Grady and Steve Chamberlain would oversee the club in the interim. Derry remains, for now. Cambridge City's first league win of 2017 didn't come until late January, and February brought just one league win. March was a horror month with four straight defeats without scoring, but a run of four wins and a draw gave them hope of beating the drop and the Lily Whites didn't concede either. On the final day, they needed to beat St Neots and hope other results went their way to survive. They won 3-0, but it wasn't enough, and it condemned City to the eighth tier on goal difference. Pre-season bought mixed results, but manager Robbie Nightingale remained optimistic. We've got a really good young group that, you know, full of energy, full of desire, and, you know, understand what Cambridge City means in regards to local football. So yeah, we're, we're really positive and, and looking forward to, to what could be a very successful season. Despite an opening day defeat, City have picked up form in recent months. Victories over Stamford and St Neots in the FA Cup have also brought in much-needed cash, but their cup dreams were ended by St Albans, who beat them in a replay. City have also developed a reputation for scoring. They took just 20 games to reach 50 league goals. James Hall and Jordan Williams have both re-signed, and Jack Facey and Ben Seymour-Shove have also joined. Plans to build a new stadium at Sawston were approved in November, much to Chairman Kevin Satchel's delight. Time will tell, but um, I believe that the right decision was made, obviously, and, uh, and that as a result, we will get a new football stadium in Sawston. Histon are also rebuilding following relegation and are playing in Tier 9 of the football pyramid. 
After four consecutive January wins, they were believing in a great escape of their own, but then came a run of seven without a win, which was brought to an end by a victory over Marlow. The Marlow result was the start of a revival, and the next three games saw them get two wins and a draw to give themselves hope. But Histon were relegated on Easter Monday. Manager Lance Key began reshaping by retaining ten players in May. One of them was James Carman, who urged the club to hang on to their talented youngsters. We've got a few scholars. Them scholars don't look like they've actually been away from the football club. They've actually come in and look like they've been there since day one. There's two or three players what have come in and we've got to try and keep hold of them. Despite a frustrating pre-season and an early FA Cup exit, Histon managed four wins and four draws from their opening eight league games. Lance Key took satisfaction from beating God Manchester in late August. It's been a very good August, I must admit. If you'd have said to me at the start of it, where we are right now and how we've gone about ourselves in, in August, I'd have been delighted with it. Today's result, obviously, 4-2 at home to Goddy. Felix Stone Walton were the first team to beat them in the league in 2017-18 and consistency was a challenge in the following weeks. A League Cup win over Saffron Walden in late October, followed by four straight league wins, got things back on track. But December began with back-to-back losses. In grassroots football, Hardwick, Combaton and Bar Hill were among the sides to win league titles, and the efforts of volunteers were celebrated in October. Chris Pringle from the Cambridge FA hailed their hard work. It's great to meet some of them more in person. My team obviously work with them on a, on a daily, weekly basis, so it's great for me to meet them all and say that personal thank you. In women's football, Cambridge City went into Christmas top of their division. Cambridge United manager Steve Edwards left by mutual consent in November. In cricket, Cambridge-born Tom Wesley made his England debut against South Africa in July. Wesley hit 25 and 59 as England won the third test and later the series. He kept his place for the following test series against the West Indies, but low scores saw him come under scrutiny. But he hit 44 not out in the third and final test as England secured the series. The result possibly saved his international career. Wesley missed out on an Ashes place but was called up to the England Lions squad, which went down under. But a broken finger meant he had to fly home early. In motorsport, Cambridge driver Luke Davenport was involved in a horror crash at Croft in the British Touring Cars Championship in June. Davenport spent time in a coma following the 11-car pile-up, but is recovering well and hopes to return in 2018. He got back behind the wheel of a car just months later. Fellow Cambridge driver Rob Huff was also involved in a shocking incident, but escaped with just a bruised arm. His car tyres burst in a race in Austria, causing his car to do several somersaults. Huff did manage a record-breaking ninth win in Macau in the penultimate round of the World Touring Cars Championship. Sam Tomlinson, Michael Kane, and Ben Barker also took to the track in 2017, and Barker was involved in the Le Mans 24-hour race. He shared some track insight. You generally can um, can go for quite a long time, so you don't get as knackered, you know, as a as a full-on track like yeah. Spa or something. So generally, I'd do a couple of hours on, and then I'd have three hours off, let my teammates drive, jump back in, do another three hours or something. So. In athletics, Cambridge's Johnny Peacock has had a sensational year. Prior to the World Para Athletics Championships, he told Sky Sports News that preparations were going well. I know that I'm in good shape at the moment. I've proved that all season long with my races. Um, we had a great training camp out in Paris. Proved a lot of thoughts right that I had throughout the season, uh, which were really good. He went on to retain his 2013 gold in the T44 100m race and revealed plans to take a year's break from the track soon after. Peacock won gold again at the Muller Grand Prix in Birmingham in August. Soon after, he was unveiled as Strictly Come Dancing's first disabled contestant. He survived until week nine. He also picked up third prize at the BBC Sports Personality of the Year. In snooker, Cambridge-based Neil Robertson has had successes, most notably the Hong Kong Masters and the Scottish Open. But he was knocked out in round one of the Riga Masters and the China Championship and also endured an early exit from several other events, including the World Open. The Australian also spoke out about an addiction to video games, which he admitted had been hampering his career. In blind football, Cambridge's Roy Turnham scored for England at Euro 2017 in their 2-0 win over France in the bronze medal match. 
In Rugby Union, Cambridge RUFC, Shelford, Cantabs and the Cottenham Renegades have all had busy years. England Counties beat Spain in June. Cambridge University head coach James Shanahan and Cambridge stars Dan Seal and Albert Portsmouth all played their part. Former Cambridge player Alex Good represented the Barbarians, while Jamal Ford-Robinson, again ex-Cambridge, went to Argentina with England. Both the men's and women's teams from the University of Cambridge won their varsity matches. We said goodbye to the Cambridge Lions Rugby League team in 2017. Founder Scott Jackson was upset to see the club go. Yeah, it's gutting. It's five years. It's a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of money. But not just mine, obviously, there's a lot of other people that have been involved and helping. And yeah, it's quite wounding. In American football, the Cambridge Cats, the Cambridge University Pythons and the Anglia-Ruskin Rhinos have all represented the city. The Pythons qualified for the playoffs and beat Oxford in the varsity match. Their head coach is Gary Villiers. We are so excited. It's a tough game. Oxford were outstanding, and but you know, great to see my guys come through and, and win it right out of death. In hockey, Cambridge City signed Rio gold medalist Helen Richardson-Walsh in August. Several Cambridge University students took part in various international rowing events in 2017. The boat race went ahead despite a bomb scare. Just before it, Cambridge's Ben Rubel said the rivalry was still hot. A hidden animosity, I would say, um, between the two. And sometimes it's played up, but there's also times when it's, it's very real. Oxford's men and Cambridge's women were the winners. The May bumps also took place this year. Cambridge-born diver Daniel Goodfellow was reunited with Tom Daly at the World Championships in July, but the pair missed out on a medal. And several stars have visited Cambridge, including wheelchair basketball player Wendy Smith, who was promoting inclusive sports. I think it's really important nowadays because so many people get left out of sport and there are so many games that can become fully inclusive if you just think out of the box. That's it for another year of Rewind. Thanks to Neil Whiteside, Tim Willett, Matt Webb, Daniel Baker and Mark Liversidge. And to BBC Radio Cambridgeshire. For Cambridge 105 Radio, I'm Julian Clover. Mm-hmm.